0: If you're looking at this from a strictly historical standpoint, and you don't bring any theological baggage with you when you examine these claims, if you're able somehow to separate your, your prior assumptions that God is real, that God can perform miracles, and you strictly examine the evidence that we have, it's not credible whatsoever. We wouldn't say, based on the evidence presented, this is most likely what happened. Hey, uh, welcome back to another episode of Reason to Doubt. I'm your boy, Jared, and with me, as always, is Jordan. Today, we're going to cover Easter. Uh, We thought with um, Ash Wednesday just happening and Lent upon us and Easter season coming, it would be appropriate for us to kind of dive into the resurrection and look at the claims made by the New Testament, and see if we can't uh, evaluate those from a skeptical point of view. So uh, we'd like to start off by saying that this topic is massive, and there's we can't do it justice within an hour podcast. But what we're going to do is hit the main highlights and kind of examine some of the Some of the big things that we need to look at along the way. And then, if we get feedback and people want us to do a deep dive into some of these things, we can approach that later on. But for now, this is just going to be a brief overview and examining the evidence and and whether or not it holds water.
1: Definitely a bird's eye view of the Easter story. Um, So, in case any of you have been living under a rock somehow and have no idea what the Easter story is, uh, the Bare bones highlights are that Jesus, who is this Jewish guy, lived about 2,000 years ago, kind of a big deal now. Uh, he was preaching in Jerusalem during the Passover about how the world was going to end and God was coming. And uh, then he was crucified or he was taken by the Jews. They accused him of doing stuff the Jews didn't like. Jews threw him to Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor. The Romans crucified him, the charge according to the Gospels being that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. So they killed him via crucifixion. Some cool dude named Joseph of Arimathea uh, came and took the body, buried him in a tomb. Three days later, tomb was empty because he rose from the dead. And then his followers saw him after death, and Paul saw a vision of him on the road to Damascus. So that's the Easter story
0: in 30 seconds. You forgot to mention the part about the bunny who comes and gives you candy.
1: That is an axe, not in the. Oh, okay, sorry. <clears throat> I always get those confused. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Luke didn't get that till volume two. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, whenever you're examining a claim to to decide what your prior probability should be about it, like what kind of prior, what kind of belief you should have going in how likely or unlikely it is, you need to know what normal looks like to assess how unusual this claim is.
0: Correct.
1: Um, And just whenever you're reading any kind of historical document, um, you have to understand the historical context, things that would have been obvious and apparent to the writers and readers 2,000 years ago. You know, it's a different time with a different culture, with different preconceptions. Um, So we thought we'd spend a little bit of time just kind of going over what was normal in first century
0: yeah. Palestine. And just real quick on that. It's important too to not only realize the, the historical context, but also to recognize your own biases and your own lenses that you're wearing when you're reading these things. So it's, a, it's important not to read modern day things into ancient texts. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: These texts were written by ancient people for ancient people. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, first thing, talking about, since crucifixion is the central thing in the gospel story, um, what was crucifixion? Um, in the ancient world, it's, it's actually not talked about directly very often. But what it was was a punishment that the Romans employed, and not just the Romans, other people did crucifixion as well, but the Romans are probably the most famous at it. And it was a brutal punishment where uh, the exact specifics varied, but broadly speaking, you were nailed or sometimes tied to a vertical post with a crossbeam uh, through the ankles and through the wrists, and you would be left on the cross hanging until eventually you would asphyxiate because you couldn't support yourself. So when you're hanging, like you wouldn't be able to breathe and you would just die.
0: Either that or exposure. Um, and that, a lot wasn't known about this for the longest time until there was actually a discovery of an archaeological site where they actually found some of these uh, crucifixes and they, they were able to actually get a lot of information more <clears throat> to help corroborate some of our ancient sources on it as well. So, uh,
1: A lot of ancient sources when they mention crucifixion don't go into detail um, and that may seem odd if it was so widespread but everyone knew about it it wasn't something you had to go into detail of because everyone was vividly aware of what crucifixion was and probably didn't want to talk about it very
0: much Um, a modern day example would be kind of like um saying like a gas chamber or if you were to say like um what's the word i'm looking for um like euthanasia um were you being Mm -hmm. euthanized like 2,000 years from now, if somebody said was reading and said euthanized, they might not know what that means.
1: Or we sent them to the gas chamber and then nothing else is said. We all know what that means. We don't feel the need to explain it. Right. Um, Yeah, so it was a punishment that was used um, to punish rebels, to punish rabble-rousers, people who were troublemakers, um, anyone who had questioned the authority of Rome. Um, And importantly... The common practice after you died was for you to be left on the cross, so your body would be ravaged by animals or rot away, or it was one last um, slap in the face, yeah. if you will, and the defiling of your body.
0: And also, too, is to leave it out there as a reminder of everybody else to say, "This is what happens when you break when you break Roman law, or you step on the wrong guy's toes." You know, it's like this is,
1: yeah the Romans were very big about sending a message. That was their entire philosophy. So uh, we don't have a lot of ancient sources, like we said, about exactly what happened. Uh, One source that's often talked about is Philo of Alexandria. So he was a Jewish man who lived in Egypt, in Alexandria, about contemporary with Jesus and Pontius Pilate. Um, And he mentions crucifixion A couple of times in his writings. Um, So Philo of Alexandria was writing about the time of Jesus, though in a different area, and he was complaining about how the governor Flaccus was crucifying people near the emperor's birthday. He says that uh, rulers, basically uh, in Flaccus 83, he says that uh, rulers should not punish condemned people um, around the birthdays of emperors um, to honor the birthdays of the illustrious Augustan house. Um, he says, I have known cases when on the eve of a holiday of this kind, meaning a holiday for the Roman emperor, people who have been crucified have been taken down and their bodies delivered to their kinsfolk because it was thought well to give them a burial and allow them or, uh, the ordinary rites. for it was meet that the dead should also have the, the advantage of some kind treatment upon the birthday of the emperor. Right. So this is significant because Philo brings this up specifically because it is an exception, not the rule. Yeah, It is, it is an unusual thing and he is very specific about why it was, ha- it happened. It was because they were honoring a Roman emperor.
0: Correct. And as we as we'll get into later, uh, a lot of times when Christians are speaking of, of the resurrection, they make it sound like it's normal practice for people to, Jews to be able to take the bodies of their crucified ones and carry out their their rituals and their uh, all the things that they would be able to do which Philo is saying in this area during this time that was not the case. And so he's Right.
1: We have there's little and, and again no, there's nobody writing in 1st century Judea telling us exactly how Roman law was administered. But there's nothing indicating that no matter what the the Jewish law, because there were Jewish laws about how to treat people who were condemned to death, even people who were mm-hmm. crucified, but there's no reason to think that the Romans would have felt in any way compelled to follow Jewish law. You know, the the Romans, particularly Pontius Pilate, couldn't give a single flying f what Jewish law was.
0: Exactly. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: and, and on that we do have a little bit of a record of of Roman law in a book called uh, the Digesta. Now. It's kind of far removed. It was compiled in the 6th century. They claim to be referring to a 3rd century author who claims to be citing a 1st century author. So it's very far removed. But with that understanding, the tenuous link, um, they say, at present the bodies of those who have been punished, meaning punished by crucifixion, are only buried when this has been requested and permission granted. And sometimes it is not permitted, especially where persons have been convicted of high treason. That's relevant because that is the crime that Jesus was accused of, according right. to the Gospels. Uh, wow. I should also say the um this the 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 idea that crucified victims were left on the cross is not some weird like fringe belief like Gary Habermas, and you're, you'd be you'd be hard pressed to find a scholar more respected by the conservative Christian community. Yep. Uh, Gary Habermas, though he does believe in the empty tomb, concedes that typically victims are left on the cross. He doesn't think that's what happened to Jesus, but even he concedes that that's what normally happened.
0: He literally wrote the book on crucifixion and resurrection. So why was Jesus crucified to begin with? Well, it's important to understand like around this time of first century, you had a lot of uh, apocalyptic messages being brought up. For example, within the new Testament, John the Baptist is another character who is an apocalyptic prophet preaching like the end is coming near there was other jewish apocalyptic um preachers and messianic figures during this time and so it was very common for this to happen Um, jesus is not new in this in this scene but jesus rolls up into jerusalem during the passover festivals getting right right before passover and starts preaching this apocalyptic message one the one of the Sorry, messages, God. one of the messages that he's preaching, is that apparently he's saying that he is the Messiah or he is this messianic figure, which is of great significance because that entails that he is the King of the Jews or the future King of the Jews to come. And if you know the Romans, they don't like other people being in charge unless they put them there. And so, mm-hmm. in order to it- qual- quash this. Uprising before it even starts, the the Romans are like, "No, um, this isn't happening. You're done. Let's go on."
1: In order for Jesus to become king, whoever's currently king can't be
0: king no more. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you and, when you and, play the Game of Thrones, you either win or die. <laughs> uh,
1: it's it's also important that it was by Passover. So Passover is the Jewish festival where they celebrate the. Um, God coming in force in Egypt to destroy a foreign power that was oppressing the Hebrews. Yeah. And if that sounds somewhat familiar, don't worry, the Romans didn't miss that either. <laughs> they knew quite well what it was about. Yeah. Uh, it was always a time of unrest. Uh we get stories of this from Josephus, who was a author in the first century slightly after Jesus. Yeah.
0: And during the during this time of Passover Roman the Romans would have brought in more troops to help keep the peace. They would have had a heightened sense of uh of what's going on and even the fact that Pontius Pilate uh who was one who condemned Jesus he would have been in Jerusalem during this time too to make sure that he was taking care of stuff because he he controlled a vast area not just Jerusalem and so the fact that he was down here is significant as well. Yeah. It just shows- Jerusalem
1: is not where he lived. Right. He lived in Caesarea, yeah. I believe. Uh, or Caesarea, however you pronounce that. And he would leave his normal home with his troops and go to Jerusalem specifically to make sure this specific thing didn't happen. Yeah. And as as Josephus records several times, uh, it didn't always work. Yeah. There were. There, in fact, there was a couple times when uh, there was a slaughter because uh, tensions were so high. And according to Josephus, one of the Roman guards thought it would be really funny if he mooned the crowd. And the crowd didn't think it was so funny, so they attacked the, the soldier. So naturally, the, the the appropriate response is to brutally murder dozens of people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because Romans. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that goes to show just the character of Pontius Pilate as well. I think this is a good time to to cover that. So what we know about Pontius Pilate really is only from a few sources, uh majority of it being from Philo, Josephus and then a little bit from the New Testament. And what we get when we actually examine the picture that is painted by these three sources is a very stark difference between the three. Philo paints Pontius Pilate as a very uh, harsh ruler, somebody who didn't play games, and you didn't cross him, and he would squash stuff, no questions asked, no remorse. Josephus is a little bit more apologetic to um, a Pontius pilot, but still, but he
1: was he was writing to Romans. He
0: was writing. He was actually hired by the Romans to to write too. So I mean, it, it's understandable why he would do this. Uh, but he didn't hold punches either. Like he painted picture, a very similar picture to Philo. He just used less. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he used less pizzazz when he was writing. I guess uh, to make it sound like it was better. In contrast, though, the New Testament authors uh, paint uh, Pontius Pilate in a much different light. And even amongst the Gospels, what we have, if you were to compare Mark to John, the last Gospel, so we talked about this before, like Mark was the first Gospel written around 70, John was later written anywhere from 90 to 100. Um, Mark is very like Pontius Pilate had a trial. Uh, crucified Jesus, and the responsibility was on him. By the time you get to John, what you see is Pontius Pilate trying to wash his hands of this, saying that Jesus is innocent, that he doesn't want anything to do with this. He tries to send him back to the Jews to take care of, and eventually hands him over to King Herod to to do the, the ultimate um
1: he he washes his hands of it because literally, he doesn't want to be involved
0: figuratively and literally to say like i am done with this i don't want nothing to do with this and this is significant because the authors of the new testament are trying to portray pontius pilate as an innocent figure in all this and even in the ethiopian church um later on pontius pilate was uh considered a saint like he got his sainthood like he got his magic yeah. his wings and his halo and he's up in heaven now sitting next to jesus um, the guy who
1: literally condemned him to death.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and there's no indication that uh, that this would have happened anyways, considering what we know about how Roman rule and law hit, uh, happened and Pontius Pilate himself. He, he wouldn't have given any just, responsibility just, to Herod. or
1: Just to drive home how Pontius Pilate was, I've got two specific examples. The first one is uh, from Philo. Philo is writing about um, Pontius Pilate. So some Jews are complaining about golden shields, graven images upon them. They complained to Pilate, uh, asked him to take him down. He steadfastly refused the petition for he was a man of very inflexible disposition, very merciless, as well as very obstinate. And they threatened to go to the emperor. And he feared that they would in reality go to the emperor. Um, due to his uh, corruption, his acts of insolence, his raping, his habit of uh, insulting people, his cruelty, his continual murders of people untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending and gratuitous and most grievous inhumanity. Therefore, being exceedingly angry and being at all times a man of ferocious passions, he was in great perplexity, neither venturing to take them down, nor wishing to do anything that would be acceptable to his subjects. And then later, the Jews actually do go to the emperor, and the emperor says, hey, man, chill out, take him to Caesarea. And so Pilate listens to the emperor. Clearly, now, granted, Philo may be exaggerating a little bit. He clearly has an axe to grind. Yeah, But (laughs) he's writing at the time, during the life of of Pontius Pilate. Sure. So clearly not a great image portrayed there. And then uh later in Josephus Antiquities 18, uh Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct in Jerusalem. Cool, laudable. Uh but he needed money. So what he did was he plundered the temple of the Jews, <laughs> like looted it for cash. Uh, Many tens of thousands of Jews gathered to protest. So what Pilate did was he sent his soldiers into the crowd dressed as protesters. And on a signal, the soldiers pulled out clubs and set upon the crowd indiscriminate of who they injured and killed. Quote, they equally punished the tumultuous and not, nor did they spare them in the least. Yeah. So they they killed, they indiscriminately killed protesters until the protesters scattered.
0: And and that one's significant because that's Josephus uh, writing right? in Jewish antiquities. Right. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, from all our sources, from all our extra-biblical sources, Josephus is a brutal dictator um, who has no interest whatsoever in pleasing the Jews um, and ha- and doesn't have any qualms at all about resorting to violence in order to solve his problems.
0: And the reason we're bringing all of this up is, one, because Pontius Pilate is a huge figure within the Easter story, but also to show to have, have a baseline for what we would expect Pilate's reaction to be to somebody who's causing a, a stir around the Passover. And uh, one last thing that I'd like to bring up to is that resurrection wasn't an uncommon thing in the ancient world. So it's not uncommon in, in these ancient, in the ancient world and in, in ancient stories that we have for people to be risen from the dead. In fact, it's quite common. And we have a lot of examples of other figures throughout history being risen from the dead. And so one thing...
1: Uh, What are some examples
0: of that? So, um, let me pull up a list real quick. I don't want to butcher their names off the top of my head because they're all funky names. Alright, so a couple examples of this just briefly is within the, the Near East itself, you have Osiris who is a dying and rising god from the Egyptian um, pantheon? You also have Dionysus, who is the son of Zeus. Um, so, just to, these are two examples. And then there's a couple others. Um, and Pythagoras, or no, sorry, um, Apollonius. Of Ap- Tiana. Apollonius of Tiana. Yeah, that's the other one I was just trying to, to think of, which is even more. Um, contemporary with jesus but all that to be said is that this is there's other examples throughout throughout history of this happening
1: not to say that these other stories are the same in every particular to christianity or the christian story the easter story or you know that 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 they're the one is copying the other just that the motif of a divine being dying in some sense, and living again in some sense was common in the ancient Near East yeah. at the time. So it was not an, a completely outlandish idea, um, even if it wasn't what the Jews expected in the form of their Messiah. Correct. Well, and that just, I think that shows um, how this story could fit in the broader context of the time. Sure. Right. So so to sum up, this is what normal was. In, pa- in first century Palestine, it was dominated by the, by the Romans. Uh, the story happens during Passover, which we know is a very tumultuous time, very tense. There were many Jews at the time who believed that God was going to come and overthrow the Romans. And Pontius Pilate, the governor who's in charge, had a history of brutally murdering without hesitation anyone and everyone he perceived as threatening Roman order yeah so that's the standard that's what we sh- if we know nothing else that's what we should expect yeah.
0: and if there's something to the contrary we're going to need some a good reason why something yeah. different went on. so to be clear we're not
1: saying that it is impossible an exception was made or that just because this is normal this is how it always was but if something is an exception, if some, it right. would then, of course, be exceptional.
0: We're, we're establishing our prior probabilities right now.
1: Right. Um, so in terms of where we get the gospel stories, um, you know, their oral traditions, we go over that in episode six, I believe it is, mm-hmm. uh, where the gospel is written by witnesses. So if you want to hear where the stories came from, go listen to that podcast. Spoiler, they're not. <laughs> Right. But in short, they were based on oral traditions that were passed down for several decades before being written down in book form. Um, There's some problems with overlap. The timing of the resurrection is moved in one of them. It's on one day in the Synoptic Gospels. It's on a completely different day in John. Um, But if you want to hear about that, go listen to episode six.
0: And as far as extra biblical sources for the resurrection, we don't have any. I mean, we have people mentioning it outside of the Bible, but all they're doing is recounting that this is what Christians believe to have happened. They're not actually sources about the resurrection itself.
1: Correct. There are the one thing you may hear if you look into it um, as extra biblical sources, Josephus, the Testimonium Flavium, which uh, is problematic, to say the least. we could do an episode on that, but basically, Josephine scholars don't... Basically, it, it's a insert into a story where he's talking about actually some of the problems with Pilate, and he says, oh, and during that time, there was this guy, Jesus, and he just goes on like a paragraph about how awesome he was, how he did miracles, he was the son of God, and then keeps talking about Pilate afterwards. And most, most critical scholars, I, I, virtually all critical scholars agree that that is not what Josephus wrote. Yeah, this was
0: a redaction by some scribes copying it later, and they just inserted it in there. Right. So
1: I think most Josephus scholars think that there was something about Jesus there, but nothing nearly that gushing, and certainly nothing about him rising from the dead. Um, so no extra biblical sources. So given that, let's move on to the claims that we're examining. So we've established what normal is. We know where our sources that are making these claims are. Um, so what are the claims? Uh, starting first, first claim, Jesus was crucified by the Romans. Um, that claim seems completely plausible historically. Yep. If we believe the gospel stories, um, maybe he was punished for being King of the Jews. Maybe it was just because he was a rabble rouser, but if he was flipping tables in the temple, he would have ruffled some feathers.
0: Yeah. And and that claim too is not not that hard to believe. I mean, it, it's very similar like people were killed by the Romans all the time. So, there's nothing yeah. extra crazy about that.
1: In after this is after Jesus time, but um during the Jew, the the Jewish War in 70, yep. when some apocalyptic Jews decided now's the time God is coming and they rose up in arms and then were subsequently just utterly
0: crushed by the Romans who then burned the temple to the ground. Yeah. Not only that, um, but they ran out of trees for crucifying people.
1: Yeah. The general literally crucified so many people, they had no more trees left to crucify. They chopped them. on
0: all the trees in the forest, and they couldn't chop down any more trees to crucify people. That's, yeah. That's
1: how... <laughs> yeah. So the idea that the Romans would have crucified someone who is claiming to be the King of the Jews and was causing trouble during the Passover. A hundred percent plausible. So I think,
0: and this by most um, scholars, secular Christian doesn't matter. Most people think that it is a historical fact that Jesus was crucified by, by the Romans. Like it's, undisputed
1: it's one of the most well-attested facts and and it fits perfectly with our picture of the romans it makes complete logical sense it's multiply tested up and down the board it's great so crucified by the romans green check mark
0: so next up on the list we have that he was buried
1: yeah he was buried and then three days in a tomb and then three days later that tomb was empty
0: right so let's just let's stick with the buried part real quick what given what we've already said, and we have some sources on this, but what actually most probably happened to people who were crucified
1: So if you look at uh, a study called a multi uh, la, 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 a multidisciplinary study of calal trauma in Roman Italy, a possible case of crucifixion question mark. By uh, Galdi, Hohenstein, Anisto, Pili, and Carmelli, um, they found a heel bone that was possibly um, a victim of crucifixion, and they found them in an unmarked dirt hole, why did not they, a
0: tomb. But well, why did they think the heel bone was a possibly a victim of crucifixion?
1: Uh, because there was a nail driven oh, through it, okay. or there, well, they didn't see the nail. There was a hole consistent with a nail okay. that they found in the bone in a time when the Romans were around crucifying people, so they they don't make the claim necessarily that it was, but they say it seems likely, and if it is, here's what it implies. Um and in it they mention that after the victim's death the course was left on the cross to be devoured by predators. Um although they mention that it could be removed later if permission was granted. They don't say this part, but it's implied by the context by the Romans. Yeah. Because the Romans are the one doing the crucifying. Um you can Bart Ehrman talks about this a lot you can google his name
0: yeah. in mean, he, crucifixion Bart Ehrman's very famous for saying that most likely what happened during crucifixion was that the crucified were buried in a mass grave um just to to rot and die not not to die but they already dead but to rot Yeah, so that's unceremoniously that's most likely what happened um so
1: again like we talked about there were exceptions made potentially but they were made in our historical record, they are made for ruined reasons. So the question, um, so the story is that this guy Joseph of Arimathea, who was supposedly um, some rich guy, he's a member of the
0: one of the Sadducees, no, who um, was in charge of
1: yeah, the Sadducees, or no? He 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 was a Pharisee, wasn't he?
0: He was a member of the Sanhedrin.
1: He was a member of the Sanhedrin. That's it. There's somebody which is po- the ruling.
0: So much politics yeah. back then it's crazy, man.
1: Is not like now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he uh, he was a member of the ruling class. Yeah. Of the hebrews and he went to um pontius pilate and begged for the body and it was granted so and then it was brought to this private tomb now it is true that if the jews had their way according to jewish law they would have wanted to bury this body even if they didn't like him because that's what jewish law said um so the fact that a jew would want to go bury him is plausible whether or not it was this joseph guy or somebody else the fact that the jews would want to do that sure i think we can buy that so the question then becomes is it likely that pontius pilate would say okay to this request
0: and the answer is probably no given what we know about pontius pilate and his brutality and the fact that he had just like the, Jesus had just been crucified for causing an upstir- up, uh, uprising. He was causing chaos. Like we need to squash this. I don't think it's likely Pontius Pilate would have granted this.
1: It would be contrary to every testament we have to Pontius Pilate's character.
0: It's not impossible, um, it would,
1: though. Sure, it's it's possible. It certainly is a thing that he could have done for whatever reason he decided to do it, uh, but if I were laying bets, I would not bet on the kindness and mercy of the man who indiscriminately kills unarmed protesters who are protesting him looting their temple. Yeah. Um, so it, it is here. I think we'd have to put a question mark. It is possible that he was buried
0: in a tomb. Um, also side note, Arimathea uh, isn't a last name. It's most likely a place. So like, you know, Jordan of Richmond and Jared of Charlottesville. Joseph of Arimathea, we uh, don't know where Arimathea is or if it ever was a place. Like, right. So well, uh, so the third part here, uh, empty tomb. So let's just grant that somehow he made it into a tomb. Now the claim is that on the third day, the tomb was empty. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason they say this is credible mostly is because that the tomb was discovered to be emptied by women. And as we all know, women are stupid. And no, that's not true. Uh,
1: I I don't know why they were at the tomb. They should have been washing dishes back in the homestead.
0: No, but apparently in in the Jewish culture and Jewish legal system, women's testimony was incredible. And so what Christians say is that it's embarrassing to have women be the ones to testify to the empty tomb. Therefore, it's more likely that it actually happened. Um. But that's just not the case because if you look at Mark, um, it it's more probable that this is a literary device that he's using because throughout all of Mark, uh, it is the least of these and is you know the ones least likely that Jesus is using throughout the whole thing. So it makes sense, literally, like in a literary um, context,
1: it, it it fits the literary narrative of Mark constantly in Mark. The, the disciples don't understand who Jesus is. They don't get it constantly. The only people who do are the poor, the weak, that disenfranchise the women. Yeah. And so it makes sense within the context of that literary narrative, that it would be the women who discovered the body. It also makes sense just historically, if someone's going to go take care of the body,
0: that would typically be women's work. They would go and um, dress the body, cover it with oils, you know, do all make it smell no. good. Right.
1: Um, so, but even if, even if you accept all that, um, the the whole embarrassment thing, in Mark, what happens is the women discover the tomb empty, some guy tells them that Jesus is risen, um, and then they go and run away and never tell anyone, the end.
0: And literally, the gospel ends right there.
1: Yeah, so that right is out. the end. The, the ending in your Bible, if it goes past that, there'll be a note usually saying this isn't original to the text, and it was added um,
0: hundreds of years after the fact. Like, right? So,
1: if if that's the case, how do we even know? So, <laughs> <laughs> right? So, let's say they told somebody. So, in all the other Gospels, they do go and tell someone. So, literally, they find out the gosp- the, the tomb is empty, and who is the? F- they immediately go tell men who then come and can testify to it. So if you need men witnesses, you've got them. Yeah, Because you don't need the women for any anything. Because you have men who can testify to the tomb being empty and men who can testify to Jesus being risen. Mm-hmm. So the women being the first to see it isn't particularly problematic. And let's not forget, uh, to quote Bart Ehrman, if you want to wonder who might have made up the story about women being the first of the tomb, maybe women, because they were huge in the early church despite being in a patriarchal society, uh, women were a big role in the very early Christian church to the point where some women were listed among the chief leaders by Paul um, along with the men. Yeah. That didn't last very long, but...
0: Paul shut that down real fast.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we can't have them women walking around with their their head uncovered. <laughs> uh, So yeah, it... There are there are other reasons why people claim that the claim that the tomb empty is historical, um, but given that it's likely from context that there wasn't a tomb to begin with, and that even if there was a tomb, that that there's no reason to believe it was empty, and even if it was empty, there's that doesn't mean the body got up and walked away. Right. Like, if you saw an empty grave right now, you wouldn't immediately assume.
0: <laughs> yeah. That... Right. But I think what, what most Christians say is that this is a cumulative case, and that given mm-hmm. all the pieces of the evidence, um, to when taken together, the most likely explanation is that Jesus was was risen from the dead. And so that that final piece that we haven't talked about yet is his post-death experiences. And so it doesn't right. matter if the tomb's empty if you don't see him afterwards. Mm-hmm, exactly. And so who so, saw Jesus after his death?
1: That is a great question. Depends on who you ask. So according to the Bible, if you, da 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 just, you know, for the Bible told me so, uh, if you believe everything that's in the Bible, then all of the disciples, except Judas, who was dead at this point because um, he killed himself, if you believe them, all of the disciples saw him. Uh, doubting Simon God, put Thomas. his finger. That da- sorry, doubting Thomas. My sorry, he's my favorite one. The only <laughs> rational skeptic in the bunch. Uh, doubting Thomas literally puts his finger in him. All the women saw him, and then later uh, there were visions all throughout the church. And then, obviously, most importantly, Paul, formerly Saul, saw the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Yeah. So, uh, in reality, we have no idea how many people may or may not have seen Jesus after his death. I think it's pretty clear that someone had some experience that convinced them that Jesus had risen from the dead. I think it's pretty safe. I don't see how you could get to Christianity as a religion if that never happened to anyone.
0: Right. And and Paul is probably our best example of this because it's written about by Paul himself and the author of Luke and Acts about mm-hmm. the Damascus Road experience. And right. So I mean two separate multiply attested that Paul had an experience of the risen Jesus. And one of the people testing it is Paul. Yeah. Well, so what's significant about this experience of the risen Jesus is that we can use the word hallucination, we can use the word vision,
1: apparition. apparition,
0: whatever you want. But Paul did not, according to Paul himself and the author of Luke and Acts, have a physical interaction with Jesus. Like it wasn't Jesus's body. He had a vision. So much so that in Paul, the people that were traveling with Paul heard stuff, but they didn't see anything. Mm-hmm. Right. Right.
1: So it's clear that this is some kind of non-physical event. Whether or not it's, it's real or all in Paul's head, it's non-physical in some way. Right. And this is especially important because in letters and in, in the church, Paul refers to himself as an apostle, and other people consider Paul as an apostle, an apostle being someone who has encountered the risen Jesus. And he is, Paul is considered just as much an apostle, and his experience is just as valid as every other apostle. It's it's not in any way distinguished, which begs the question: if Paul can have an experience that is, according to Paul, non-physical, that that at least opens the door that a non-physical encounter could count. Yeah, which seems odd to us as 21st century Western readers, uh, but. You have to again remember the culture you're dealing with at the time, and in in fact, even now in non-Western cultures, hallucinations are normative. It's it's not considered strange or unreal.
0: We don't Um, give you lithium when you have a hallucination,
1: right? right. So, well, they uh, didn't, but they didn't. So, it um, according to uh, so in in cultures where where these experiences are considered valuable, they're more likely. Uh, so you can read Culture and Hallucinations, Overview in Future Directions by Leroy et al. And they talk about how not just the frequency of your experiences, but also what the content is strongly dictated by your expectations and the culture you're in. Um, so people in cultures where visions or hallucinations are normal, meaning that they're accepted and viewed as valid, they're much more common. hmm Um, even among cultures like our own that are not, where it's not normative they're still very common Um, in does this one have it? I think it's the same paper yeah, so in the same paper um, even in our non-normative culture, 10-15% to of the population report having had a hallucinatory experience at some point of some level and um, as many as 80% of those who have lost a loved one report having it.
0: Right. Which is, so let's, let's think about this for a second and take a step back. Why would it be significant that a follower of Jesus had a hallucination or an experience of the risen Jesus? Um, first of all, they just went through something very traumatic. Um, we'll, take, we'll leave Paul out for a second because his story is a little different. But if we look at James and Peter, who were probably the most prominent figures of actual disciples who follow Jesus. Um, James being um, the brother James of Jesus. James being the brother. So, a, someone they just love was crucified. He was preaching a messianic message, which meant that they thought that he was the Messiah, the one who was going to bring about the end times. Um, and... Messiah is not supposed to get killed, you know? So this would have been a very hard time for them. And I think you did some research on, like, grievance experiences and, like, stuff like that. That That's a plausible explanation for why they would have manifested some form of hallucination of, of, of this right. experience.
1: And the expectation of an apocalyptic Jew was that at the end, t- end times, there would be a resurrection of the
0: dead. Right, yes, yeah, Exactly.
1: That now, granted, it may not—they may not have expected it to take the form it did. The dead being the the dead Messiah, but they expected that those who had been asleep previous would rise up, as to to receive their judgment. So that again ties back into the the culture paper. Their expectation could be said to be shaping the experience. Mm -hmm. They're seeing what they expected to see, and um, there's a good. It's long, but there's a good paper. Um, experiencing, or sorry, it's a thesis. Sorry, not not a, but a good thesis. Experiencing the presence of the deceased, symptoms, spirits, or ordinary life by Jacqueline Hayes. And she, um, there's a lot of research there about when people are grieving, how, what kind of experiences do they have, and there's a lot of case studies in there. It's good for flipping through, but <clears throat> um, people. The, the kind of experience they had varied by their culture and their own expectations, but one of the common themes, not universal but common, was that it was a conciliatory thing or a way to to say goodbye or to solve some kind of lingering grief mm-hmm. um some the apparition would often they would so the experiences were varied sometimes they would hear them and have whole conversations sometimes they would see them, sometimes they would touch them, and feel the person, or feel them touch themselves. Uh, One of the common ones was a, they call it a feeling of presence, where you just, they knew the person was there. Like, they just, they knew. And it's, the, the researcher even remarks how, like, these people were certain that the person was there. Even the guy, there's a guy in there who doesn't believe that he saw anything. Like, he's, like, a cultural Jew, but doesn't, actually buy into anything and he's like, I know I'm hallucinating, but it felt like he was there. Right. You know. Um so these are people in again a non normative um culture who are having conversations with the dead. They are viewing the dead. They are feeling the dead. Um and the dead are telling them many times things that make them feel better or conversations
0: they'd wish they'd had or things like that. Right. And it's not uncommon too that let's say Let's say that James had an experience, right? And he's with Peter, and he mentions his experience. Well, he's now priming Peter, and now Peter has an experience, right? It, it, it's the expectation that this is happening, and so it only takes a couple people to have an experience for this to start snowballing,
1: right? And I think that's that's important. A couple of people, because there are many claims in the Bible about him appearing to all of the 12 and then 500 people. And so what you'll often hear is that group hallucinations don't happen. That's not necessarily true. There are examples of things that I think most of us would think are hallucinations. Like uh, Mary seems to appear to people all the freaking time. Uh, she but... was
0: in my toast this morning.
1: Yeah. Uh... <laughs> I can't show you the picture though. X-rated me and Mary go way <laughs> back. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but anyways um it, but even if, if you accept that group hallucinations don't happen we don't need them you still get the sit you can explain everything all our observations of the christian religion starting if only a couple people had experiences that they believed were authentic right once they're convinced then they
0: convince others um the only outlier here i think is paul and because Paul yeah. wasn't a follower of Christ. Um, but according to Paul and other, the new Testament writings, Paul was a persecutor of the movement from the beginning because Paul was apparently a Pharisee. And so these Jews were preaching a message that went against the Jewish traditions and Jewish teachings. And so Paul took it upon himself to snuff this out. And, um, I'm not sure if the claims that he actually killed Jews or new Christian followers, they weren't really called Christians then are credible or not. But whatever the reason, Paul got emotional about this and he even writes about this later on in his own his own writings. And so it's not it's not unexpected that Paul had a his own experience after hearing about other people having experiences as a way to reconcile within himself. The things that he was doing that was causing him pain you know I don't know if that makes sense but
1: to be clear we're not claiming that that is in fact what happened because I'm not no. gonna psychoanalyze someone who was dead 2,000 years ago but all, I, all we're saying is that it is a plausible alternative to
0: this supernatural story and it's um in my opinion it's more plausible than somebody who is actually risen from the dead. Like, if you had to take the two and say, which one of these are are more plausible, you take the naturalistic explanation over the supernaturalistic explanation.
1: Right. So is it likely that James and Peter and Paul would all have experiences that convinced, that experiences of the risen Jesus that they believe meant he was actually like the first fruits of the resurrection? Is that necessarily likely? It may not be likely. However, is it more likely than that a, a there's an almighty creator of the universe who is otherwise unevidenced, who cares who you sleep with, and he rose a body from the dead, which is more likely. And I would contend
0: it's the natural one, right. the natural explanation. Um, yeah. Let's see. Yeah. Bart Ehrman is famous for saying this, that a miracle by definition is the least probable explanation. Like,
1: Yeah. it. Yeah, it's, um, by, by its nature, it is highly improbable, even on theism. Right. Um, so we should expect a great deal of evidence. And so, um, to tie this all together and wrap up, we've said it a thousand times, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. A claim requires evidence in proportion to how outlandish it is. Um, So the claim here is that a person was killed and then supernaturally raised from the dead. And the evidence we are given are the second, third, fourth, fifth-hand writings of people 2,000 years ago, and one first-hand account by Paul, who had a vision. That's what we have. Yeah. Should that be enough to convince us that this supernatural event happened?
0: Right. And... The the writings that we do have, we can get into this another time. We've touched on it briefly already. They're not the most reliable historical documents to begin with.
1: There are reasons to believe that these are not sober historians that are recording things they saw. Right. Um, they didn't have a problem
0: changing their story for theological reasons, particularly John. Yeah. And just kind of reiterating this. Even within the resurrection story itself within the Gospels, there are many irreconcilable differences between the accounts of all four Gospels.
1: But something that is often said is that, okay, yes, all this is unlikely. Yes, you know, they don't have to be supernatural, but these are people that are writing in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. So if they they were claiming that Jesus was risen from the dead— all anyone would have had to have do, done is gone to the tomb and produced the body, and Christianity is dead right there. Why didn't it, the, the fact that that didn't happen shows that there was no body to produce? However, I think that's a little bit anachronistic. That's us from the twenty first century, where Christianity is a third of the world or more than that, and for most people, the people in America, eighty percent of our country is Christian. So, Jesus is a big deal. Jesus didn't matter in the first century. Nobody cared. Nobody cared about Jesus, least of all the Romans. Yeah. Uh, Jesus' death was just another day, one more death to add to the pile for Pontius Pilate. I, I, I would wager that if you had gotten to Pontius Pilate on his deathbed and asked him about Jesus, he would have said, Jesus who, before he died. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just wasn't that important and so by the time he becomes important by the time this movement becomes widespread enough for people to care to refute it who how are they supposed to go check anything especially if the tomb didn't actually exist that they probably don't even know where this body is right you know the last <laughs> how are they supposed to find some random body thrown in a mass grave 30 years ago? You know, <laughs>
0: yeah, that's his bone right there. That's the one.
1: Yeah. yeah. And even if, even if they did, how, how would that body be in any way recognizable as Jesus? It There's just, it's just not an effectual claim. And yeah. it, it even assumes that anyone would have the desire to, check these claims but people don't check claims they hear today Mm. like coronavirus is raging through the the country and I've had people tell me that it started because people were eating live bat soup in China why because they heard it on the internet
0: (laughs) that sounds pretty tasty though
1: does it because I don't think it does I mean I hate to be (laughs) American centric but (laughs) yeah Uh, so yeah, it, it's just the fact that it was being written during the Times of Eyewitness is, is not in and of itself compelling to me anyway.
0: The other thing that I think we should should drive home is that if you're looking at this from a strictly historical standpoint and you don't bring any theological baggage with you when you examine these claims, if you're able somehow to separate your, your prior assumptions that god is real that god can perform miracles and you strictly examine the evidence that we have it's not credible whatsoever we wouldn't say based on the evidence presented this is most likely what happened right
1: if if you don't come to the table with a pre-existing belief in the supernatural that doesn't mean you come to and that This distinction is a little fine, and I think we got into this in another podcast on the one about doubt, but it's not the same as being biased against it. Correct, yeah. Right. We're just, we aren't coming with that prior belief. So you can come at it one of two ways. You can come at it believing or not believing in the supernatural or or lacking belief, not coming to the table with that belief, in which case the evidence we have is insufficient to justify that belief afterwards. Like There's nothing we see that requires a supernatural belief to to explain. So, we don't go with that. Or, you could come to it with a supernatural belief, and perhaps if you had a supernatural belief of the right character, then maybe Jesus rising from the dead is perfectly plausible and the most likely explanation. Cool. That does mean, then, that the resurrection cannot, by definition, be evidence for the supernatural. Because you came to the table with that is a as a presupposition right you assume the supernatural so it would be circular to say i because the supernatural exists jesus rose from the dead and because jesus rose from the dead the supernatural exists you can't do it so, you got got to pick one yeah so if you want to if you want to say okay but if you assume the supernatural okay cool i agree sure if you assume the supernatural great now now prove that
0: one for me so We started off by kind of laying the groundwork for what normal looks like. Um, And then we compare that to the claims in the Gospels. And in every instance, what we would expect to see is not what happened in the Gospels or the Gospel accounts. That doesn't mean that, we're not saying that, that doesn't mean that the Gospel accounts aren't accurate and that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. All we're saying is that the evidence presented. Is contrary to what we would expect to see.
1: Yeah, the events described in the Gospels don't line up with what we know is normal, and the evidence is insufficient to justify a belief that the extremely abnormal happened. There's no reason to think that Pontius Pilate made an exception for Jesus. There's no reason to think that, so he was therefore buried in the tomb. There's no reason to think that the tomb was, in fact, empty. There's no reason to think that that's due to a supernatural experience, and there's no reason to think that they actually saw the the living person of Jesus.
0: Right. And the naturalistic explanation is more probable than the supernatural one that we're given. It's more probable that the body was stolen. It's more probable that the body was in a mass grave and people had a hallucination it's more probable that the Romans decided to hide the body. There's all kinds of stuff that yeah. could have happened that's more probable than he rose from the dead.
1: You would want to eliminate all of those more probable natural solutions before you were forced to conjure up a supernatural to explain things. Yeah. So now you can walk into church armed with this knowledge uh, and completely make a scene on Easter Sunday. I uh, when you I do, have. when you do that... And I encourage each and every one of you to do that. When you do that, be sure to tell them to come listen to this podcast, reason to doubt, to give it a like, to comment on our Facebook as the people who made you do this, and as you're being led away in handcuffs, <laughs> uh, remember you've always got reason to doubt.
0: <laughs> We're going to get sued, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs>
1: They might say in court that I was joking, I am not joking. <laughs> <laughs> I, Jordan Caram, a sound mind.
0: <laughs> uh, only Jordan. Jared had nothing to do with this song. <laughs> and just the whole idea too, like so the other thing that bothered me is like so so let's say Jesus. Jesus was crucified, and let's say He did rise from the dead. Uh, the reasons that were later given by the church are crazy reasons. Like you have like the the idea for sacrificial atonement. Like Jesus had to die in order to save us all from our sins. Well, that's kind of weird, right? <laughs>
1: it's like uh, <laughs> Jesus is like, I need to die to save you from what?
0: From what I'm going to do to you <laughs> if you don't let me save you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well even even that, like the idea of the Trinity, like